extrovert time is over. You guys got to go sit back down. <laughs> uh. Good morning, everyone. Good to, ha- good to be back here with you again this morning. Um, so we've been starting off our messages uh, with a, kind of a, a group benediction, um, sort of like a benediction. We all get up and we read this passage, 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17. So if you'll all stand with me and we'll read this together. All scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. Awesome. Thank you, guys. Well, I'm excited to be back. Um, Last week, uh, I was here for my first time ever getting to preach in front of the full congregation of Sunrise Church, um, and it was a ton of fun. Um, I enjoyed it a ton, and, and I got a lot of positive feedback after the message, like almost an overwhelming amount. Um, and I was like, man, this must have been a fluke. Like, th- there's no way, there's no way that my first time preaching could go this well. Um, and so, uh, and then I, 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 was, I was thinking about it later on in the week, and I realized something. Um, I had been lifting, I'd, I'd, been, I'd been telling people all throughout the past couple of weeks that I'm about to go up and, and preach. And, and I had told them how nervous I was, and, and you know, nervous and excited. Um, and every time they would say to me, oh, I'll be praying for you. And I, and I made the connection. It took me a while. I was dumb. It took me a while. But I made the connection. People were praying for me last week. So I'm going to ask you to do something for me this morning. Um, I, uh, I've got a, a difficult message ahead of me to preach. N- mostly because it's just... It's hard to explain, and I've got some other constraints. I'll explain those in a second. Um, And so if you all would just, I'm going to kind of welcome the silence into the room again. I know this is like a thing with me now. I'm going to welcome the silence into the room, and if you all would pray with me that the message reaches those it needs to reach in the ways that it needs to reach them, that would be awesome. Otherwise, take a 30-second nap. Father God, let everything that does not come from your spirit be forgotten. Let only that which you will to remain um, stick. In your name we pray, amen. Thank you. So last week we got through a whopping two chapters. Uh, We only have 40 chapters to cover today, so it should be a breeze. (laughs) Um... I've got quite the task ahead of me this morning. I, last week, I, I opened up and, and was talking about uh, the trilemma, right? Remember the triangle from last week? So I've got a trilemma of my own this morning. Um, I, was, I was talking with my granddad, and I realized this, and I was like, oh my gosh, I've got to share this. So I've got 30 minutes to talk today, which is less than, than we usually allow for because of the annual meeting, which we would love for you all to stay for at the end um, of today's service. 
I've also got 40 chapters to cover in the book of Job. Um, and so if you do the math, if I were to do like an exposition of all 40 chapters, I could spend less than one minute on each chapter. And I've got an important message to pull out of the general book of Job, right? Trying to, trying to tie it to the general message uh, that the book is trying to, to give us. And I realized I can only have two of these things. So I'm, I'm, I'm glad, I'm, I'm thankful that you guys are reading along with us through the book of Job. You guys are probably, at least some of you in the room are reading along with us. If you're not, I would, I would invite you to join us. Um, if you've been reading along with us, then you kind of understand the contours and the shape of the way that uh, Job and his friends are kind of sparring in, throughout the book. You understand the shape of the dialogues. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to focus on these two today. I'm going to focus on my time constraints because I kind of have to. Um, and I'm going and, and to focus on the general message that the book of Job is trying to teach us. Um, so in order to proceed... Um, I got to kind of reset the stage from what we talked about last week. Um, before I do that, before I do that, I'm going to tell you a story. Can I tell you a story? Okay. Um, there was, there came a time when I was growing up where I started developing this chronic strep throat. Raise your hand in the room if you've ever had strep throat before. Okay, like, a, wow, a decent amount of people. Yeah. So strep throat, if, you, if you're unfamiliar... Um, it's something you pass around a lot when you're a kid, so a lot of parents would probably have some experience with it. Um, and it makes the back of your throat look kind of like cheese pizza. It's like nice and, and like white culture, you know, over the, over the uvula. It's, it's beautiful. Um, nice and red, swollen. There was a, a point, it, it makes your throat so swollen and, and tender that it's difficult to swallow. At least for me, this was, this was the way that I experienced it. And there were times where it was so painful to swallow that I would sit, this is gross, I would sit in my bed with a cup and drool into the cup. So just soak in that image for a second. <laughs> it's a bacterial infection in your, in your tonsils and your lymph nodes at the back of your throat, and it is no picnic. Um, I also have to tell you something for this the rest of the story to make sense. I have to share with you a deep fear of mine. When I was uh, little, I went and visited my cousin in the hospital. He had contracted pneumonia. And I saw the breathing tubes and the IV, and something, I don't know, triggered in me. I, was, I, was, uh, I became very deeply nauseous and dizzy, and you know everything started to sound really far away, and then the black cones started to kind of come in. And I don't know what it was. I, maybe it might, I'm just like hypersympathetic with my, with my body. Like I can just feel other people. I know whenever somebody gets hurt, I can feel it, right? So maybe it's that. But ever since then, I've been kind of terrified of hospitals, medical places. Um, and for anybody who's working in a medical professional, and it's not you. It's just the place you work. So <laughs> I've been terrified of this ever since I was a kid. So, okay, going back to the story, I was, I was taken to the doctor for strep throat because you have to get antibiotics prescribed to you in order to get rid of the strep throat. It won't go away unless you have antibiotics prescribed. So I was going to the doctor. Um, we get there. The, the nurse jams the Q-tip into the back of my throat to figure out if it's, you know, uh, if it's strep throat. Comes back, it's positive. And so, he, but he says something. I was getting strep throat at this point probably once every quarter, right? So about three, four times a year. 
for several years, which is just ridiculous. They were thinking I might have been a carrier. I, anyways, so he said, he said to me, um, I'm sorry, but the next time you come in, we're just going to have to take your, take your tonsils out. Like, you, you just, we can't keep doing this. Um, if, uh, if you know anything about antibiotics, you build up a tolerance. And you need antibiotics if you get like a raging infection. And so they, did, they wanted to preserve the ability for me to have the antibiotics. So I went home with this new knowledge that I basically had one last chance to get strep throat. And then I was doomed. Um, and so and it, I, I went home and I kind of pondered my fate. And it, I, I say fate because it did feel like my fate. I was so prone to strep throat at this point that it would have been more likely for me to have won the Oregon lottery than to have kept custody of my tonsils. I just, I just embraced this fact about the future. Now, this is a silly story, and I understand that. Um, many of you came into this room with much bigger fish to fry. Um, things like looming evictions or... Um, marital collapse or financial insecurity or you're worried about your children's future like these are big problems I'm talking about strep throat it's something minor I'm talking about getting your tonsils removed something that a lot of you have already had happen right but I was deeply nervous about this it meant a lot to me at the time I was young um, the reason I'm sharing the silly story is not because of how much I suffered but because of what happened next that night, after hearing the news, I went home, and I got in the shower, and I remember this viscerally. I, I remember the water rolling off my head, and I just started to cry. I was emotionally broken down. I was anxious, and I, I was trying to figure out some way of keeping my tonsils. <laughs> and I, I, I reached out to God in that moment. You know, C.S. Lewis says there's no, there's no atheists in foxholes, right? There's this, there's this idea that when we're, when we're stressed, that's when we go to God. And so I, I, was, I went to God. And this was more a faith that my parents held than me. It's, I, it wasn't really my faith at this point. I, wouldn't, I, did, I wasn't a knowledgeable Christian. But I cried out. And I asked for something kind of absurd. I didn't just ask that we could put off the surgery or that he would give me more time. I asked that he would never let me get strep throat again. Now, it's a silly story. That moment of crying out for the way that things should be is what I want to hone in on today. Um, we just started in the book of Job, and last week I floated the idea that the book of Job is perhaps the scripture's answer to the problem of evil. It itself is an example of the problem of evil. And we went over how the problem of evil works. The problem of evil simply stated is that uh, wh why do bad things happen to good people? Why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? And it's a trilemma, which means that there are three parts to it, but only two of them make sense together at a time. Basically, it's like a triangle, but you can only choose one of the sides, right? So if you were here last week, you remember this. If not, you can go back and watch the message from last week, and it, this will make so much more sense. Um, and I showed that God is shown as, as all of these three, or as these two things in the story, and Job is the human who suffers unfairly. So the, the story of Job maps onto this quite well. What happens next in the story in, in, in Job's disaster um, is that 
there are two voices that come to speak with Job. They try to console him, comfort him, advise him. And all the while, they're trying to figure out how to make sense of this disaster that's befallen Job. Because it doesn't make sense to them either. They're looking at the same, the same triangle that we're at, looking at. And so we talked last week about Job's wife. How she approached it and said, it looks like God just isn't just. It looks like God just isn't all that concerned about what's fair. And she used that to disavow God. She, she encouraged Job to curse God. Job doesn't see abandoning God as a good answer, though, because God is his creator. Humanity owes, it, uh, owes God its loyalty regardless of how he treats us. And so, again, for a more in-depth treatment of Job, go back to the message and, and watch it. Again, this will make so much more sense. Last week, we ended off with Job scraping himself outside um, of the ashes of what used to be his estate, an estate that is now empty, it is lifeless, there are no children running around anymore, um, there's no livestock in the fields because they've all been stolen or destroyed, there's no servants to tend the fields because they've all been killed. So that's where we have left off. And Job's wife comes out and says her piece, and then Job replies with his piece, and the narrator moves us to the next voice, the next voice that comes in the, and, into the story, and it's the much larger portion of the story. So let's, let's jump there. When, Job's three, uh, when three of Job's friends heard of the tragedy he had suffered, they got together and traveled from their homes to comfort and console him. So that's the objective. Why are they coming? They're coming to comfort and console him. So let's keep that in mind. Their names were Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Naamathite. Those are difficult to pronounce. When they saw Job from a distance, they scarcely recognized him. So whatever Job is dealing with here, as far as his skin is concerned, it's not an acne breakout. This is like, this is severe. This is severe. Enough that it, it's, he's almost unrecognizable. Wailing loudly, they tore their robes and threw dust into the air over their heads to show their grief. They sat down on the ground with him for seven days and nights, and no one said a word to Job, for they saw that his suffering was too great for words. Seven days and seven nights. Job's friends get a lot of flack for the way that they treat him for the rest of the book. But I've never done something this loving. I have never gone and mourned this long with someone in mourning. I mean, Jesus even tells us to mourn with those who mourn. But I can guarantee you I've never done something this loving. So let's stand back a moment and recognize. I, I'd imagine there are very few of you in the room who have sat for a week in silence, saying nothing, and just being there as a shoulder to cry on. So let's recognize that we're all condemned by this. <laughs> but after the seven days, the thoughts which had been ruminating in Job's mind came out in an avalanche of bitterness. It begins by saying, at last Job spoke 
and he cursed the day of his birth. And if any of you in the room have ever dealt with deep depression or suicidal ideation, this is going to sound familiar. He goes on. Oh, why give light to those in misery? Life to those who are bitter. They long for death and it won't come. They search for death and more eagerly than for hidden treasure. Now, if you were sitting there listening, I'm guessing this would strike you as distasteful. It's hard to listen to words like this. And it strikes Eliphaz as misguided. And so he begins the conversation. He opens his mouth, the first of the friends, after seven days of silence. And he says, will you be patient and let me say a word? For who could keep from speaking out? See, Eliphaz seems stirred to correct Job's perspective. And this is a theme that we're going to trace all the way through the rest of the dialogues. A bit into his first speech, he says, stop and think. Do the innocent die? When have the upright been destroyed? And if you're listening carefully, you'll notice where he's at on the triangle. He's just given his stance. He's disavowed the idea that humans suffer unfairly. Everything they do is deserved. So now we know where he's coming from. And if we follow the, bread comes, the, the breadcrumbs, this means that Job's suffering must be deserved. He must have sinned. Now, we the reader understand that Job is innocent. We, we were privy to, the, uh, to information that the friends did not receive. We witnessed the wager between God and Satan, and we know that God himself has called Job blameless. But the other two friends follow suit. They begin accusing him over and over again of sin and attempting to break him and attempting to get him to crack by interrogating and lecturing him for 30 chapters. Here are some wonderful examples. You'll probably uh, recognize these from your reading. Bildad jumps in in chapter 8. Does God twist justice? Does the Almighty twist what is right? Your children must have sinned against him. So their punishment was well-deserved. Now remember they came to comfort and console. Much comfort. Um, we can go to the next one. Zophar, chapter 11. Get rid of your sins and leave all iniquity behind you. Then your face will brighten with innocence. Because Job's face wasn't bright with innocence as it stood. Obviously because it wasn't bright, he couldn't have been innocent. Eliphaz jumps in in chapter 2, and this is maybe my favorite out of all of them. You must have sent widows away empty-handed and crushed the hopes of orphans. I mean, it's just getting absurd, right? <laughs> in attempting to defend their doctrine, they've actually just torn Job down. They've painted him as the villain, and their love for God, ironically, has led to hate of their neighbor. So how does Job respond to all of this? Well, of course, he defends his innocence because he knows that he's innocent. And he, and he asks them a damning question. This is how he responds. Are you defending God with lies? Do you make your dishonest arguments for his sake? 
Will you slant your testimony in his favor? Job is, is pointing out the irony of lying to protect God. Last week we talked about how Job's wife abandoned the truth about God to side with Job. Well, the friends are doing the opposite. They're abandoning the truth about Job to, to, to side with God. They're lying for God. And Job foresees that this cannot end well for them. And in the end, Job is right. In the last chapter, God speaks to Eliphaz, and he says, I am angry with you and your two friends, for you have not spoken accurately about me, as my servant Job has. Now, I think for anyone who's read this far into the story, this much is clear. It's easy to see where the friends went wrong. The text is pretty clear about it. But God doesn't just condemn the friends. God also explicitly vindicates Job's voice. Oh, go, go back. There we go. Um, for you have not spoken accurately about me as my servant Job has. So now there's a question for the reader. What did Job do right? What did he get right in all of this? The fact that Job's voice is favored by God becomes even stranger when we read some of the things that he says about God. As you've been reading along with us, I'm sure you've seen some things that maybe make your blood curdle a little bit. This is maybe one of the worst examples, um, but there's tons of stuff like this throughout, this throughout the dialogue. Innocent or wicked, it's all the same to God. It's why I say he destroys both the blameless and the wicked. When a plague sweeps through, he laughs at the death of the innocent. So we, we see something like this and we think to ourselves, how could God get, let him get away with saying something like that? How could God call his speech about him right? This has puzzled me for a while. I had to sit with this for a long time to try to figure out what Job did right. But finally, a few months ago, I feel like I came to some sort of a realization, and that realization, for me, completely changed the emphasis of the book of Job. The answer I came to is that Job's righteousness in his speech is more a matter of his posture than a matter of his words. While Job freely admits that he's experiencing God as unjust— Job never lets his questioning or his doubting lead to abandoning God. He never jumps to conclusions. To the end, Job pursues God's voice. He begs for an answer from God. He never gives up on God. See, Job's wife sees a disconnect between her experience and her faith, and she, she uses that to abandon the idea of a just God. Friends, the friends of Job see a disconnect between their faith and their experience, and they use it to condemn Job. But Job felt the disconnect. He felt the dissonance as well between his faith and his, and, and his experience, but he didn't abandon either of them. He held them in tension and allowed them to dialogue with one another. It would, think about how easy it would have been for Job to have seen his suffering and thought, well, I guess God just isn't just. Right? It would have been so easy. It also would have been easy for him to see his suffering and to have thought, well, I guess I must have sinned. I must have done something to deserve this. But he didn't allow 
his mind to bypass the mystery. He sat in it. He took the predicament and the question that it was causing and he brought it to God. He called God to court over and over again. He wanted an explanation and he didn't let God's silence stop him. And so Job decided to live in the discomfort, the uncertainty and the tension between his faith and his experience. And I think there's something that we need to learn from that. He held the triangle intact by living into the question. See, something had to be abandoned in this experience. Something had to break. And while the friends and the wife allow their doctrine, their, their beliefs, one of the three points on the triangle, to be let loose so that they can maintain the other two, Job holds all of them in tension. And he allows himself to break. The under, Job's understanding of the universe, his confidence, his certainty, his stability, his comfort, his solid ground, those were the things that were abandoned. Job's firmness dissolves away into a frantic questioning because this is the only way that Job could preserve his beliefs. So even though he was having trouble with God, he expected God to answer. And this is what Job got right. Once he faced the mystery... God was able to give him an answer. In my own faith journey, I've often prized certainty. I want to feel firm in my beliefs. I want a logical belief system. So when my faith and my experience don't match up, I definitely feel the temptation to change my theology or to change my understanding of my experience. I get uncomfortable just waiting to understand. I want to understand now. I get uncomfortable waiting on the Lord to answer either my questions or my prayers. And that seems to be a human thing, a thing that probably everyone in this room has dealt with. The disjunction between their faith and their experience. And we all live in the modern age where certainty, expediency, and efficiency are king. It's becoming even harder for us to live the question as Christians. It's becoming even harder for us to dig our heels into uncertainty. We look at the scriptures as an instruction manual. We look to experts, Chris, uh, Christians as our totems, as our primary sources. We cling to our favorite internet personalities as our safety blanket. And if we pray and God doesn't answer, we give up. If we expect something from God and God doesn't answer, God doesn't follow through, then we reanalyze the way we see God. And at the end of the day, we look at our faith, and it's reasonable, and it's logical, and that soothes us. But at the end of the day, the problem is that Bildad, Zophar, and Eliphaz had very logical faith, a faith that made sense. They were so sure of their doctrine, in fact, that they were willing to lie to preserve it. And Job's wife has the same issue. She's so sure that Job is innocent that she's willing to confidently disavow her creator. She lets her experience guide her doctrine. So the question becomes, what good is logical doctrine if it's not true? If it's not in accord with reality? How, how, how good is your faith if it can't handle mystery? How could good doctrine lead us away from loving God? 
or away from loving our neighbor. Job's faith, on the other hand, it knew no certainty. It's in this tug of war between reverence and expectation. On the one hand, Job accepts the good and the bad from the hand of God, anything from the hand of God. But on the other hand, God has made promises and Job's not going to let those go. He's going to make God accountable to his promises. We're human beings. On the one hand, we are dirt. On the other hand, we are the divine image of God. If God is the potter, we are the clay. But God loved us enough to die for us. And it's in this tension that Job exists. It's in this tension that Job shows us a faithful way of believing. So if you feel like God isn't who he said he would be, you could respond like Job's wife, and you could use it as evidence to abandon an attribute of his, or maybe him altogether. Or you could, exp uh, you could respond like the three friends, right? And you could use your evidence uh, to prove that you're actually not worthy. You're not worthy of receiving his promises. But Job shows us a third way, a more faithful way, and he embraces the tension between being dirt and being God's covenant partner. He knows that God is always worthy of praise, but he's expecting God to keep his promises. Nonetheless. And the tension that's produced in that is a wrestling. It's a grappling. It's a struggling with God. And now here's the crux of the issue. This is, this is the takeaway for today. As the people of God, we are called to wrestle with God. It's part of our calling. It's a theme that pervades all throughout the scriptures. I could give you so many examples. I'm going to give you four. Over and over again, we see faithful men and women approaching God with audacity and confidence, reminding him of his promises. Abraham approaches God confidently, and he says, O sovereign Lord, what good are all your blessings when I don't even have a son? He had already been promised descendants that would outnumber the stars in the sky. God had made his promise, but he hadn't seen the fruit of it yet. And so he goes and wrestles with God. He argues with God. When God is threatening to destroy Israel for making the golden calf, while M Moses is up on Mount Sinai speaking with God, he says, Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You bound yourself to them with an oath. God doesn't need to remember. God knows everything. What is he saying here? He's saying that he's experiencing God as one who is abandoning the promise, and he's calling God back to the promise. And it's this faith, this remembrance of the promise that gets God to relent. The psalmist cries out, Wake up, O Lord. Why do you sleep? God doesn't sleep. But maybe God felt unresponsive or distant. Maybe the psalmist is wrestling with what he believes about God, what he's experiencing from God. He sa and David says, um, Remember, O Lord, your compassion and unfailing love which you've shown from long ages past. God is love. He doesn't need to be reminded of love. But the psalmist is wrestling with feeling unloved. It's how he's experiencing. So he's letting his doctrine, what he believes about God, 
speak with his experience, how he's feeling God. And that's what we must do. Perhaps the greatest example of someone entering the ring with God is Jacob, who literally wrestles with God. He does not let God go until he blesses him. And Jacob's name is changed to Israel that day. And every one of the descendants that, we, that would come out of the nation of Israel is marked with the name wrestles with God. It's what it means to be God's covenant people. We must wrestle with God. So when you pray for something and you don't see the answer, you feel abandoned by God, don't let that go. Bring that to God like Job did. Beg him to show you your sins. Challenge him to explain himself. If you want God to heal you, then take that to him. If you want God to provide for you, go and remind him that he promised to do so. If you want to be closer with God, you have to wrestle with him. You can't just lie down. It's easier to lie down, but you can't do it. It's not real faith. It's going to be messy. You're going to have a bruised hip in the end. Right? You'll have something to remember it by. But you may be able to say with Jacob, I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been spared. Or you may be able to say with Job, I had only heard about you before, but now I've seen you with my own eyes. It's in the wrestling. It's in the mystery. It's in the uncertainty that God reveals himself to us. I have to end this off by saying that since I prayed that panicked prayer as a kid, sitting in the bathroom, crying, I have never had strep throat. I don't know how to explain it. You may find that insignificant. That's fine. But it's something that I look back on and I lean on when God feels distant, when it feels like, <laughs> when, it fe <laughs> when, when God feels distant, um, when God feels asleep. But the healing doesn't come without weeping. The deliverance doesn't come without wrestling. And I believe that the book of Job is inviting us all to imitate Job, to imitate Jacob, and the rest of the patriarchs, and to wrestle with God until he blesses us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it's, it's so difficult to wrestle with you. We, we, while we have to take up the mantle and go confidently to you, while we have to remember your promises and expect them, we may end by saying, I cover my mouth for I have nothing left to say. At the end of the day, God, we just want to know you. And if it takes wrestling with you to know you, then we'll do it. God, give us a heart to wrestle. Give us a spirit to wrestle. Give us a, a heart of motivation to go and grapple with you, to take things to you, to trust you, even when everything doesn't make sense. In your name we pray, amen.